0: I'm Kate Daniels. No question, we have some serious health and safety issues in our communities, in our world. Dr. Christy Kane is a trauma psychologist, a licensed mental health counselor, and the CEO of 360 Focus Mental Health, with over 20 years of experience. She's also the author of the upcoming book, Fractured Souls and Splintered Memories, Unlocking the Boxes of Trauma. Let's meet Dr. Kane for some important insights and plans moving forward. Dr. Christy Kane, good morning and many thanks for being with us this morning.
1: Thank you so much.
0: I'm excited to be with you, Kate. This is a very challenging and both an important conversation to talk about our personal feeling of safety, considering, you know, so much of what's going on in our world, but particularly just so recently having these mass shootings again, we think that maybe in a time of pandemic, things would calm down, but uh, to have two within a week just it seems really earth shattering.
1: You know, it does, and it's interesting. Um, I think we have to step back as we look at these events taking place and recognize the mental health crisis that we are in in our country. And I oftentimes think as we see events like this happen, I think we have to start having more in-depth conversation about Mental health, about stabilization, and about prevention instead of just triage.
0: So, when we look at these two mass shootings, one in Boulder, one in the Atlanta, Georgia area, in both incidents, we're talking about people who have said that their, uh, or at least family members have said, mental illness was certainly in their makeup.
1: Now, when we look at the statistics, especially in in perhaps like juvenile offenders, 80% of those young people are dealing with the mental health issue. And I don't know the exact statistic in the adult offender population, but I would imagine it's similar to that. It's interesting as cultures, we've been more geared towards incarceration, punitive measures, And we haven't been as good as we need to be in offering treatment modalities to at-risk populations. And I think as we see some of these events move forward, especially during the pandemic when all our coping skills were taken from us, I believe we're going to have to see a shift in our culture and our country where mental health becomes an empowerment preventative process on a daily basis. And I think corporations are going to have to take the lead in doing that but we really need to move to prevention instead of, you know, triage and intervention. We're great. When something negative happens, we send in all of the forces. We try to help people heal. But what are we doing in the meantime on a daily basis is the question we need to start asking.
0: And so that is probably the really fundamental aspect of all of this in in terms of these such traumatic situations happening. And then just in general, you know, when I look around our area and I see so much of the homeless population, many of whom are dealing with mental illness to some degree or other, it's not, it's it's a larger problem, I think, than what we want to acknowledge.
1: Agreed. And I'm not sure, Kate, if you've had the opportunity to see the recent statistics coming out, but I'll share a few. According to the Center for Disease Control, adult mental health issues in the area of depression and substance abuse increased to 40%, meaning 40% of adults during COVID-19 were struggling. And then we saw results coming out for our youth population ages 3 to 22, where the mental health medical claims, so like insurance claims, went up by 98% for mental health services. And in some aspects, in particular, like self-harming and anxiety, we saw an increase in some states by 300%. So COVID definitely increased a problem that was already there. And perhaps maybe it's beneficial in the fact that it's going to open up conversations and move the needle in ways that we need to to go as society.
0: Would you say that there was a time in our country, in our history, that we were dealing with mental health issues to any good degree?
1: You know, statistically, the Center for Disease Control um, started giving solid mental health data around the 1950s, 1960s in hard copy. When we look statistically, uh, like from the 1960s to today, there were some generations where the mental health staffs weren't as high as they are today, especially for young people. Um, the 80s appeared to have a less, a better mental health than we do today. Um, there's lots and lots of reasons, but as far as being really good at prevention, we're probably better now than we've ever been. It, you know, about 50% of the population now dealing with mental health issues are going and receiving services where in the other generations it was like ten to fifteen percent. So we're getting better at people coming to services. The problem is is the rate of the mental health issues is increasing. So we have more people who have a need than we have services we can provide.
0: And services is I, I think really the issue and I, I think about this in terms of having a, a family member who was seeking some help was potentially even dangerous to himself, but not not severely enough that going to uh, the hospital, they would say, well, you know, just kind of, here's some medications, take it easy. That there was no real good infrastructure as here's a plan, here's what we need to do. And I think he was, in this case, he was looking for some sort of counseling and direction. So I, Somehow, we really do have some holes in our system.
1: We do. And, you know, it's interesting. We've made some good advances, particular in like the pharmacology reporting system and the medical system. Let me give you an example. If you go in to a medical doctor, they can usually bring up your full medical chart and say, oh, I've seen you've had these services and these services, and and they have a history of a patient in which they can work from. In the mental health field, we're limited because of I'm sure HIPAA or other reasons. Some of that information isn't shared back and forth and um, it ends up creating um, gaps in treatment. The other issue is is sometimes people don't know. Like I, I know so many people will say to me, Dr. Kane, I know I need help but I don't know where to go. Because when we're dealing with medical issues, we kind of have that concept of you go see your family doctor or you go see an oncologist, but people are not uh, as aware of, well, what do you do in the mental health area? If you're struggling with depression, who do you go see? How do you know their expertise? What kind of treatment modalities are there? And I think we can change that in education, especially if we start addressing it. So for example, um, many corporations have employee assistance programs and HR directors um, that to guide you know, individuals to mental health, but they don't even know what services are out there. So if they can learn about those and educate their employees and the employees can educate the family, maybe we can begin making an impact. Because you're right. People want help, but sometimes they can't get it because everybody's so busy that they can't get in for months and when there's a crisis, you need to get in then, or they don't know where to go and
0: And in a crisis situation, uh, that's a very challenging time to have to then try and figure out a system. Uh, certainly if if an individual is on their own. I guess that's when you know they call nine one one and 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 they're taken, I don't know, to an emergency area, perhaps.
1: Yes, oftentimes in the crisis mode, The only recourse in a lot of communities is the emergency room. Not a lot of hospitals have implemented social workers to help counsel someone. Usually they'll visit with a person for a couple hours and assess what is needed. Uh, Sometimes there needs to be psychiatric admittance, and there's not any beds in able to admit the person. And so they'll be sent home under the direction of family members, you know, to not leave them alone and to keep them safe. Oftentimes they're discharged. Um, without any follow up plan because there aren't services available or there is a follow up plan. And then the person falls through the crack. Part of the problem that we deal with in mental health is when you're struggling with a mental health issue, sometimes you're even struggling with just the ability to follow through. You know, luckily, my company is doing something completely different than has ever been done before to try to address this issue. And we need to get more innovative because when you're depressed and when you're overwhelmed and feeling anxious, you know, sometimes one more thing out of your plate, like make this phone call, set up this appointment. You just, you just can't. And so we lose people through the cracks all the time.
0: So how are you doing things differently? What can we look to as a possible model for that can be replicated?
1: So we're looking at mental health from a daily stabilization process. We wanna shift the conversation. Mental health is who we are, cognitively, physically, emotionally, and socially. We look at mental health from a negative. Usually when you say that term, people think bipolar, depression, anxiety. But really, mental health is who we are. So we have a, a process that empowers your mental health on a daily basis while providing access whenever you're struggling to visit with someone to help stabilize and then direct you to the services we have ready to go. So for example, if you are suddenly having a panic attack with our services, you can send a text message and say, I'm not doing well. Someone responds back to you with some direct information of what you can do at that moment and does a brief assessment and says, hey, you can do this and this, I'll stay with you while you do it, does that work? Okay, if not, Let's connect you with Dr. So-and-so. They're going to visit with you for a few minutes. If that doesn't work, we're going to shift you into a full therapy appointment. And so it goes from a daily preventative process into whatever that person is needing at that time. I hope that makes sense. Yes.
0: It feels as though this is already someone who perhaps is within your system uh, who knows how to reach out is it something where within your community, people know like i I need to get connected here when they're still not at a crisis situation?
1: You know, that's taking our education process because what you know we're making available is anyone can sign up and be able to engage with us, but you're exactly correct. Again, it's an education curve. and we're you're we're behind the eight ball. You know, I spend a lot of time lecturing across the country doing different parent nights, visiting in schools, trying to make us aware of this mental health preventative stabilization process. But we're way behind on that, and we need to speed up that process. And we need to take away shame. You know, it used to be mental health stayed in the closet, right? You could tell people you had diabetes, but you were afraid to be shamed if you told people you had depression. Now, we're getting better at it, but we're not there yet. So it's just consistent education, like what you're doing today, which is great. You're focusing on this and we need to do this more and more.
0: Because I appreciate your saying, you know, the the end result, having a traumatic mass shooting, that's the result of something having gone on months and years beforehand. And that is this mental health issue. So taking it having that awareness, does that help us? Do you find it helps us to keep that in mind and therefore not feel unsafe ourselves going out and and living our life to the degree that we can during a pandemic?
1: You know, I think one of the factors that happens when there's a, a major traumatic event like a mass shooting is that we begin to translate and incorporate fear. And the brain, the the neurological chemicals that produce fear are the same neurological chemicals that produce excitement. The difference is the translation. So as we experience traumatic events, we need to be very mindful of how we're translating this, especially to young people whose minds are so Um, impressive, and they're still underdeveloped, right? They're still in the process of growing and forming. So one of the ways that we can still feel safe is to recognize when we talk about these traumatic events that that's an anomaly in the sense that that's not what goes on every single day and that most of the time what's taking place is good things in our community. So we need to talk about those. We also need to allow people to talk about their emotions regarding the trauma, the traumatic event, if we don't process that, then we run the risk of more impact to our mental health and our physical health, because it can shift into panic attacks, extreme anxiety, and even PTSD. So part of it is processing, having good conversations, allowing people to express their emotions, their fear, their concerns, and then talking about the positive and all that's good in the world today. Because if we stay in a fear base, we can create crippling mental health issues, as well as physical issues.
0: And so here I am going to play the psychologist or the armchair psychologist looking at the two individuals in terms of, say, those mass shootings. In that case, if rolling it back some years, if Potentially, they'd been able to process things that had been going on in their life. It may have prevented this, dealing with, with those situations at the time they happened.
1: You know, that would be the ideal, right, is the hope that if we do know this in the field of psychology, the younger and the sooner the intervention, the better chance we have of different results. Now, there are some diagnostic criteria. there are some mental health synaptic breaks in some people that are not necessarily treatable, that, but that's a very, very small percentage of the population. And whether or not the individuals who committed these um, very difficult, terrible events fit within that category, I don't know, but usually, Most of the time, when there can be effective mental health intervention, we can bring about change, except for in a very, very few cases. And then that's when we have to consider sometimes individuals are institutionalized just because they are such a great risk to themselves and others. But that's a very small percentage. Usually, the younger intervention comes in, the better chance we have of change.
0: So that is a an important piece of information for us to embrace, and and taking that in the context of you had mentioned earlier on uh, with the CDC reporting the increase of of mental health issues in the ages of three to twenty two that it's gone up by ninety eight percent. That's mind boggling to me. But it it, it just underscores how this is that age where we need to really know as parents, as educators, how to really work with and, and deal with these young people.
1: Yes. And, you know, here's, here's another fascinating statistic. We are seeing we are providing more and more mental health services to younger and younger children. You know, individuals may not know this, but in the United States alone, we have had eight-year-olds complete suicide. Now, I don't know about you, but when I think of me at eight years old, I, I couldn't have even imagined being in a place where I wouldn't want to be here. And so we have some crises going on that we have to wake up to and we have to start talking about. And there are really good mental health treatment modalities and engagement for young people. We just have to open the conversations and make it safe for kids to talk.
0: And make it um, also a part of our healthcare system so that, you know, what just came to mind is parents may feel uh, trapped because um, when it comes to mental health, I know when I look at my insurance plan, it's 20 visits a year. Well, I think it's 20 if it's even that. So that doesn't seem like potentially enough if there really is a a serious issue to deal with.
1: You are correct. And that's why I talked about we're doing something different because we've got to be able to shift it from just that once a week or twice a week mental health visit. Because part of the problem is this, from my perspective, Oftentimes when we're in crisis, it's not when we're sitting in the mental health office. Mm -hmm. Sometimes we need the ability to reach out and talk with someone that we have a relationship, not just a crisis line. And and I'm not against crisis lines. I think they have their place. But we also need to be able to know there's someone that we have a relationship that we trust that in a moment we can reach out. Because sometimes we only need five minutes. We just need a sounding board. Mm -hmm. Sometimes we need a 45-minute session. And so we have to start thinking outside the box in the treatment modality of mental health. Let me give you another example. The education system right now is promoting what's called social and emotional learning following Castle standards, which is great. It's not mental health based. We need to shift into programs in schools that have a strong mental health stabilization component. My, my company does that as well that goes along with social emotional learning. Because since social emotional learning came into schools in like 1994, the mental health crisis of our young people has still gone up by 40%. So we're not getting where we need to get to. And and education channels is a perfect place to help kids begin the process of stabilization and mental health empowerment. And so we have to we have to think outside the box. We have to look at all the different avenues that we can address besides just, as you said, the 20 visits in the therapeutic office.
0: And And the educational system is really the place, even though—and even with, I think, virtual learning, it still is something that could be incorporated. But when we think about schools and our kids being there for the amount of time they are, and then seeing these numbers where the mental health issues have risen so dramatically— I think it goes without saying this is where the education needs to be taking place. And then who does this actual uh, teaching, the the educational piece of it?
1: Well, you need to be able to make sure that you, there's lots of different programs across the country that education systems are buying. Um, in our particular system, everything that we've done has made it so it's not impactful to the school day, but it's, based in evidence-based research by mental health professionals. And so they have the licensures, they have the background, and they know what they're talking about. And that's what education systems need to be looking at as they implement that is how can we teach the kids on a daily basis that's impactful, evidence-based, backed by licensed mental health professionals, but doesn't take away from the learning process. And um, that, those are just kind of the criterias we, we were looking at when we put our program together, but we want the education system. To look, because Teachers aren't supposed to be mental health counselors. We don't want them practicing beyond their scope of licensure. But it's kind of ironic when something goes wrong, who do we blame? Well, sometimes they blame the school system. And then who do they expect to fix it? The school system. But they don't necessarily have the credentials and the qualification to do that. And so we can bring things into schools that help them be able to do that.
0: Which is perfect, and and really guiding the teachers, giving them the materials to work with.
1: Yes, right. and providing, like, we go into school systems and we educate teachers about what mental health is, what it looks like, what it appears like in the classroom, giving them good tools that they can use on a daily basis with those kids, and then we provide these micro-learning daily modules through the form of a video concept It helps the kids themselves be self-reliant, empower their mental health, and make good choices.
0: So we don't have to be reinventing or inventing a wheel now. Here it is. So how can parents and educators, because I think it takes all of us, how can they find out more about this? Dr. Kane,
1: They can go to my website, which is 360focusmentalhealth.com or just 360kame.com. And we're happy to talk to them about that. We're happy to direct in any way that we can. The other thing I wanted to mention, the nice thing about COVID, at least in the mental health, is man, it brought telehealth into the forefront. And now there's so many more mental health professionals offering telehealth which makes it more accessible to people, even in remote communities. So I think it's important to note that as well. Like we do telehealth. There's lots of providers who are doing telehealth. And even some of the states have lifted some of the state boundaries so that someone in, say, Utah could do telehealth for someone, say, in Michigan, because we are recognizing the crisis that we're in.
0: Yes, it it is not... Um... Contained by any kind of boundary, it's it's certainly right. uh, a a national issue here, if not really an international one. But we certainly are seeing yes, such a such a crisis and too much pain. So we need to come to what is going to be the solution. So thank you for already having such a great uh, educational piece in place that that any of us can reach out and contact you about. We should also mention that you have a book coming out that I think will also be very beneficial for those of us who like to read and kind of get more into depth on things, Fractured Souls and Splintered Memories Unlocking the Boxes of Trauma. That's coming out in uh early summer, correct?
1: Yes, it'll be it's for sale now and it'll be released the 1st of July.
0: So all of that can we can find out also uh, about at your website.
1: Yes, 360cane.com. Yep. You know, uh, I'm so impressed that you're doing this show this morning. Um, this is great. These are the conversations we need to be having.
0: Well, it's just, you know, difficult to look at the world and think, well, we need to be able to do something. And I I come back to mental health a lot of the time because I can see it uh, on the streets, certainly, as I had mentioned earlier. And when you met, and we heard it certainly in the news story as we started out talking about how these mass shootings occurred. In both instances, there was the mention of mental health issues. So we know it is at the root here. So we need to deal with that root.
1: Yes, we do. Right. And you know what we'll find? Like, for example, when we go into schools and talk to educators, one of the things people say is, "But we don't have the time to which we respond. If you'll give us three minutes a day, you will find a dramatic change in the life of your students and your educators and your families. Consistency in the process of mental health empowerment and stabilization will make the change. And we've spent way too much time just dealing with mental health in a triage process. And we can shift that. And if we do shift that, we're going to save lives. We're going to change cultures, cultures, and we're going to find a more happy and fulfilled population in our country.
0: And when you say that there isn't the time... There will be no time for a person's life, then there is no life if we don't take this very important time. And you're saying it doesn't take very much, it'll and it then will give so much more life and 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 joy for everyone, I believe.
1: Yes, right, exactly. Um, so much evidence based research shows that consistency in the format of like micro learning and micro presence makes a difference so that's why it's that layered process so we do our when people engage with it there's something they do every day to empower and improve their mental health in our process and that's where we have to get to we have to make mental health a positive not a negative and we have to start having those difficult conversations
0: and you are doing that. I am just so grateful to you for the work that you're doing. I'm so grateful that we've had this very important conversation. What a great way to uh, start off a morning and uh, on an Easter morning, because here we are, you know, it's that sense of new life. So I am so grateful to you, Dr. Kane, for for all that you're doing and for spending this time with us this morning.
1: Well, thank you so much, Kate, and thank you for talking about this topic today. My pleasure, really.